I could ask you as a parent and any other parent that's listening with a, a young child, you mm-hmm. know, say a child over three but under 12, and if you just observe them and don't try and direct them and watch what it is they like to do in play, you often will see a key to their innate talents. And if those talents are given fairly free reign, then you see that there is a union between self and talent and that this is uh, nature's way of sort of saying this is who you are and what you are. And I'm sure if you go back and think about both of your children or yourself and go back to your earliest emotion-laden visual and visceral memories of what really gave you joy, you'll have some sense of what was natural for you and where your talents lie. Who knew that we learn empathy, trust, irony, and problem-solving through play, something the dictionary defines as pleasurable and apparently purposeless activity? Dr. Stuart Brown suggests that the rough-and-tumble play of children actually prevents violent behavior, that play can grow human talents and character across a lifetime. Play, as he studies it, is an indispensable part of being human. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Stuart Brown founded the National Institute for Play at the age of 63, after too many years, as he puts it, as a workaholic doctor. His mission is to bring the unrealized knowledge, practices, and benefits of play into public life. I interviewed him in 2007. Where I'd like to start with you is where I start um, with every interview, whatever the subject is. I'd like to just hear a little bit about, let's say, your background um, spiritually as well as uh, your background of as a person who plays. Well, you know, I'm reasonably old, and I'm sorry we've only got 90 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I did I did see somewhere you made a reference to Midwestern Presbyterians, I believe speaking of your parents, and they're not famous for their playfulness. Well, I had a. They were Midwestern pre- Presbyterians. I grew up in on the southwest side of Chicago, mm-hmm. and uh, my mother was one of the uh, trustees of the Moody Bible Institute. Oh, wow! My, my my father was an organic chemist, an inventive fellow, very playful. So I grew up in an atmosphere that had kind of free play and also religious overtones. Uh, I did uh, go to a parochial high school called Christian High and then to Wheaton College. Mm -hmm. So I had a certain sense of deep belief, and uh, I reveled in that deep belief, uh, which was certainly a part of my religious background and I would say my spiritual heritage. Mm -hmm. And in your history, there is a, a quite striking and surprising straight line, it seems, between your interest in play... And an early study, psychiatric study, you became involved in, in extreme violence. Um, Tell me about that line. Well, that line, of course, opened play up to me in a a very unexpected way. Uh, In 1966, when I was just beginning to take over an office as an assistant professor of psychiatry, a young man by the name of Charles Whitman went up to the Texas Tower in Austin, Texas, after killing his wife and mother, perpetrated what was then the largest mass murder in in the history of the United States, uh, killing 17 additional people and wounding 41. 
And because I had done some studies of violence in the course of my residency in neurology and psychiatry, and because in August uh, in Texas most people who are important are elsewhere, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was put in uh, charge of the behavioral aspect of trying to figure out why Charles Whitman did this horrendous crime. And we brought in uh, the world's experts to try and figure out the motivation of Charles Whitman, even though he had been killed by vigilante crossfire at the top of the tower. Mm. And so for a very intense uh, period of time, in addition to doing very detailed toxicologic and studies of his body, we uh, retrieved as much information as possible from his prenatal era all the way up till the last hours before he died. And without going through that entire story, mm -hmm. one of the major conclusions which struck me and has certainly stuck with me since was that a remarkably systematic suppression of any free play, which was largely the result of his father's overbearing an intense personality, prevented Charles Whitman from engaging in normal play at virtually any era of his life, including his early infancy. Now, did you then continue on and, and find that to be a factor in the lives of other violent individuals, homicidal individuals? Yes, I did. I, we thought at the end of the Whitman study that this was such a bizarre aberration in human behavior that it probably was not something one could generalize from. So uh, as a result of the funding available and the availability of uh, research subjects in the prison system in Texas, uh, a team of us then studied all the young murderers whose crime was essentially homicide without their being career criminals. Uh, and we did an in-depth study of them, their families, and compared them to as well-matched a control and comparison population as we could. And lo and behold, we we discovered that the majority of them, the, in fact, 90% level, had really bizarre, absent, deficient, seriously deviant play histories. Now, is that just one symptom among others of other kinds of abuse or neglect? Or did it seem to be a quality of these lives sort of in and of itself? Well, I don't know that I can answer that question specifically because abuse was certainly a part of the homicidal population, mm -hmm. both Whitman and the, the young murderers we studied. But if you sequentially sort of watch a life emerge and you look at what play offers from uh, early infancy uh, into adulthood, when uh, crucial experiences are missed, the ability to regulate emotions and to establish empathy and to um, live with trust with one's companions is definitely attenuated or definitely uh, constricted. So that from my standpoint, although there are other factors that are certainly allow one to uh, have a, a proclivity for violence, the play history and its aberrations or lack are have proven the test of time to be extremely important in uh, the life cycle of highly violent men, at least. Let's talk about what you mean when you use the word play, when it's something that you associate so closely with words like empathy and trust. You know, what's your working mm -hmm. definition? <laughs> <laughs> Go to the Oxford Dictionary and you'll find at least 50 definitions. But uh, to start with, I'd say play is anything that spontaneously is done for its own sake. 
and then you, one can extend that into uh, more and more detailed definitions, such as appears purposeless, produces pleasure and joy, leads one to the next stage of mastery. In terms of biology, appears to be the product of what I call divinely superfluous neurons. There is, cho- <laughs> there is choice right. uh, in the player's life, and that choice, if given opportunities through the environment, emerges innately and spontaneously. If the individual or animal, for that matter, that's capable of playing is safe and well-fed. You know, you you said appears purposeless, and I'm thinking of what difficulty some parts of our culture have with anything that appears purposeless. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I would probably would put myself in this category at certain points in my life. Something that appears purposeless would probably lead to anxiety rather than joy for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not. I hope uh, part of the uh, outcome of this uh, discussion with you and your audience is, is a little guilt-free purposelessness. Okay. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Dr. Stuart Brown, exploring the place of play in human spirit and character. And you mentioned animals, and it is very intriguing to look at the work you do with the National Institute for Play, but also how much you've been involved in the science of play, which encompasses both animals and human beings. When I use that phrase, the science of play, what comes to mind for you? There's this whole world, this whole universe of a different kind of science that you have been immersed in that the rest of us probably don't even know about. Well, I think that's true, and I think that's uh, the science of play and having had a background in medicine and, and psychiatry and neurology primed me, I think, to see play behavior in its uh, evolutionary terms so that when I had the option fairly late in my career of studying play in a broad sense, I started with the animals in in the wild and learned a huge amount about uh, sort of the the spectrum of play behavior in the animal world. I've looked at some um, projects you were involved in, a, an issue of National Geographic, some of the visuals. Um, there are these remarkable images of cheetahs and cranes and bears and mountain goats who seem clearly to be playing. Well, I think there's no doubt, at least to us onlookers, that they're playing. And my guess is, uh, by all the measurements we can make on the animals, Uh, they actually are playing. Mm -hmm. And what do we know about it through science? Well, I think we know a lot about it uh, through the wonderful laboratory rat. They make a particular squeak that's inaudible to humans as a signal that they want to play. They then wrestle with each other and pin each other, particularly during their juvenile times. They engage in what a number of investigators call hardwired rough-and-tumble play. And the outcome of that is... uh, quite striking because if the laboratory investigator stops the rats specifically from playing, there are some dire consequences. They do not socialize normally. They can't recognize friend from foe. And there are other uh, very specific kinds of outcomes, which to my way of thinking, to some degree, match some of the uh, human outcomes. But of course, they're in rat language and Mm -hmm. human outcomes are much more intricate. So what is happening in play that enables 
it to have that effect on animal development or even human lives? What do we understand about this? Well, I don't think we understand enough because the cultural heritage we have is kind of like your guilt. Yeah, it is yeah. that play is trivial. It's, it's what you do when your responsibilities are taken care of, particularly as an adult. But if you were to follow, as I have uh, at least scholastically and if not clinically, if you were to follow the trail of play in both animals and humans, uh, the beginning point of play in the mother-infant or parent-infant bonding process is kind of the spontaneous eruption of joy and pleasure upon the process of uh, being safely fed. And in the case of the human, when there is eye contact and uh, the social smile emerges in the infant and the mother begins to coo, mm -hmm. that's worldwide. And there is mutual joy and the brain imaging that's associated with that shows an attunement between the mother's right cortex, the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain, and the babies. And then if you build on that and say, okay, uh, the child has experienced that, now they're growing up a little bit, they get some of the same joyful experience from grabbing something, putting it in their mouths when they're infants, and then uh, a little later uh, playing with toys, and then ultimately parallel play with other children, and on and on. I could go right mm -hmm. on up through the whole life cycle, each of which... Uh, has more and more intricate, more complex play if the individual is sort of allowed through the environment to take advantage of it. I mean, here's a statement. This was from an interview you did with Bob Fagan, who studies mammals mm -hmm. and birds, bears in particular, and you asked him about the play of bears. And one answer he gave you was, they play because it's fun, and then you probed. And he, he said also, in a world continuously presenting unique challenges and ambiguity, play prepares them for an evolving planet. I mean, that's a huge idea. I think you've said something similar about how play equips human beings uh, to live in the world. But can you explain that to me more? Well, I think, again, this part of the reason that I pursued a brilliant field scientist like Bob was I was trying to figure out the same question you're asking, because even as a trained psychiatrist, I didn't really, couldn't really figure out where it came from, why it's there. Yeah. But when you see animals and humans who are deprived of it, they are fixed and rigid in their responses to complex stimuli. They don't have a repertoire of choices that are as broad as their intelligence should allow them to have. And they don't seek out novelty and newness, which is part of an essential aspect of play, both in animals and humans. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the human situation, at least for the last 200,000 years or so, our capacity as a species to adapt whether we're in the Arctic or the tropics, the desert or a rainforest, appears to me to be related significantly to our capacity in, as, as developing creatures to play. And then if you look more closely at the human being, you find that the human being really is designed biologically to play throughout the life cycle. Huh. And, the, and from my standpoint as a clinician, when one really doesn't play at all or very little in adulthood, there are consequences. Rigidities, depression, lack of adaptability, no irony, you know, th mm -hmm. things that are pretty important uh, that enable us to cope in a world of many demands.
let's talk about children for a minute, and then I do want to talk about adults. Um, I'm interested in um, the fine line that I think perhaps is more apparent when you're studying animals or children between playing and fighting, or mm-hmm. right? So as the mother of a son, and I didn't have this experience with my daughter, but with my son, I do see how he has this rich fantasy life, and it's often kind of with himself, although there are all kinds of characters in the room who I can't see. <laughs> that's and, wonderful. Right? That's, that's, is it, good. Is that's that good? good news. Okay. And, but, <laughs> so I've named it what he does, saving the world, right? So uh-huh. when he says, I need to go save the world, which is a really nice spin I've put on it. <laughs> but there's a certain violence, there's a combativeness to it. And apparently that's quite common as well. It's universal if it's allowed to emerge. So what is that about? Well, well, let me sort of go on a riff about uh, rough and tumble play. Okay. Which, which occurs in children, both genders, but is a bit more obvious usually in boys. If you are observe, to observe kids like in a preschool that are involved with all the exuberance that preschool kids have, age four, three, four, five, and you watch them at play, it's chaotic, anarchic, looks violent on the to the surface mm-hmm. they're diving they're hitting they're squealing they're screaming but if you look at them they're smiling at each other it's not a contest of who's going to win and most well-meaning parents and a lot of certain a lot of preschool teachers put the lid on that because yeah. it's you know it's scary it'll it scary, scary for an yeah. adult because they don't remember it and it almost always has pretense and real it has violence and uh, fantasy, and it is the uh, borderland between uh, inside and outside and making sense of the world. It's a very important part of free play driven from within by the child's own personality and temperament and mixing with others. Now, you were surprised when I said things like empathy and trust earlier yeah, in, the, yeah. in, in our discussion. But think about this. If, if you are in a rough-and-tumble situation and somebody hits you too hard, you know what that feels like. So you're not going to hit, in general, hit somebody else too hard because you know what it feels like. And that's the roots, for example, of an empathic response. And hmm. the thing, the murder, mur- none of the murderers I studied engaged in normal rough-and-tumble play. Hmm. Absolutely none. And if you extrapolate the rough-and-tumble play uh, backwards into uh, animals, they also appear to need it to be able to properly find their place in the troop or the tribe or the pack and develop uh, social reality to meet their needs. So your son sounds like he's doing what's pretty normal stuff, and I think there has to be reasonable protection by adults but not the kind of uh, helicopter parent hovering over yeah. the situation which prevents the spontaneity from occurring and the kids from solving their own problems that are age, age appropriate for them. I think that's really interesting that even what looks like potentially violent play or you know can look dangerous is also a source of learning about empathy and boundaries, I guess. Sure. Well, they're, they're imposed. And, and most mm-hmm. kids who have had a not too toxic or sadistic bully in their midst will gang up on the bully and take care of him. Mm. And the bully learns. If the bully spends too much time not experiencing uh, normal rough-and-tumble play or if the taboos of violence are broken again and again in the home of the bully, then the bully's got to be removed from the play situation or they will 
you know, upset and upend the, the whole playground. But uh, in general, the kids solve their own problems, and that's one of the most important things they learn about themselves. Hmm. They learn whether they're strong or not so strong, fast or cagey, verbal or nonverbal, imaginative or uh, something else, and you learn that generally uh, on the way up sequentially throughout your childhood. Hmm. In some of what you write and the other people you're in conversation with, you make a distinction between play and contest or competition, Hmm. although I think in our culture the two often become entangled and maybe adults even impose that on children's play. Yeah, this is is certainly a sticky wicket. Uh, But in trying to sort of organize my thinking about competition and contest, mm-hmm. uh, this is where I go back to what appears to occur in nature and what appears to be kind of a natural process developmentally in those children who appear to be having a very normal background in play without too much imposition of cultural uh, pressures uh, on the part of the culture of the parents. And what one sees in general is a natural emergence of competitive activity, and by that I mean testing one skill against the skill of another, right. without the necessity of domination. And so that that quality of competition appears to be pretty universal in cliques in girls and in uh, sometimes kind of physical prowess in both genders also. Whereas contest, I think, requires a winner often has a exclusionary quality to it and is not what you see in animal play in the high primates in nature. You really? Will see, yeah. You'll oh. see uh, handicapping that occurs spontaneously in nature in which the stronger person allows or handicaps the weaker individual so that the play can continue. If there's a chase the often the chaser becomes a chasee. There isn't chasing somebody down and then putting him down. So that's sort of the natural history of play in the wild. And I think there it is possible for a wise coach or a, a seasoned parent to deal with a competition where mutual participation, love of the game, personal best, mm-hmm. uh, there are ways of dealing with this to keep this volunteer sports going without it being super contest, at, particularly at the younger ages. You make a very interesting and intriguing point about the scientists themselves who you have interacted with over the years, Jane Goodall in Africa, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned Bob Fagan, Mark Beckhoff, Irenaeus Eibelsfeldt. These are all people who study play in animals. And you've written... I believe their immersion in wild play or natural play has altered them. Say some more about that. Well, I, you know, I know uh, particularly Jane, Mark, and Bob very well. And Jane certainly was altered by the prolonged exposure and the slow habituation of the chimpanzees in Gambi when she was... Uh, you know, what some people the National Geographic called Eve in Eden, mm-hmm. but uh, where she saw and took in, in particular, the mother-infant play of chimpanzees and has written beautiful scientific essays about this and about the qualities that are induced. And when one talks to her about this, she takes on kind of a, uh, I won't call it ethereal, but it's sort of a knowingness that this is something in nature that's beautiful and appropriate and 
can be incorporated in its own language for humans. And then I go to Bob Fagan, who's with the bears in the wild for years and years, and, and I've been with him in, in uh, Alaska f up in a tree hour after hour watching bear play. And Bob has a kind of a spiritual aesthetic about play that permeates his life. I think, you know, I've never really tested this in any way because mm -hmm. uh, it would have been inappropriate, but I think that there's a certain quality of optimism and compassion that has occurred through the systematic observation of play over a lifetime. Certainly it's that case, that's the case with Mark Beckoff, whose writings on animal ethics and, uh, and human ethics and the origins of morality stem from his long exposure in the wild to coyote play and, and other animals at play. So I've been very impressed by immersing oneself in the study of play. There is a certain either permission or osmosis that occurs that's good for us. I want to name something that, so you talked about as scientists, and I'm sensing this applies to you too, that the more you expose yourself to play, that it affects you, it changes you. And to me, one of the most wonderful gifts of becoming a parent is uh, that I get a second chance to be playful. You bet. <laughs> and I actually think I wasn't so good at it as a child. And I'm, you know, I mean, but mm -hmm. I think I have a richer play life sort of with, in watching my children, I am more joyful in a way, even vicariously with, with them. And that that's, that's an amazing second chance. Well, they're the professionals. We're not. Right. They're, they're, they're <laughs> the ones who are, who are purer in their play than we as adults are. So you're right on. And, you know, being a grandparent, you get a third chance. Yeah, but it awakens. I do become aware that it awakens something in me, right, that is sure. also part of being human. And it enriches me to be exposed to that, for that to be part of my life again. Well, it's relearning the languages that are fundamental to play, which are largely nonverbal and emotional and, and really fairly specific. When you relearn those languages, just like the mother... Uh, looking at her smiling child, you get a spontaneous burst of pleasure, mm -hmm. and that, that's pretty important. You can listen again and share this conversation with Stuart Brown through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Dr. Stuart Brown on the science and the pleasure of play as an indispensable part of being human. His National Institute for Play seeks to address gaps in scientific and cultural understanding of the importance of play across the human lifespan. Stuart Brown's studies suggest, for example, that the rough-and-tumble play of children prevents violent behavior that play can grow human talents and character, and that play can be a glimpse of the divine. There's a lot of concern right now, and I know you've been quoted, you were quoted in a New York Times article um, about how in our culture, you know, as, as you and I discussed a bit, there's a tendency to clamp down on what looks too wild or dangerous. For sure. Yeah. It, from what you know and what you study and your sense of what play means in human life, what's your take on that and 
how it's affecting well, this us. Well, this is a tough one because I don't want to foster broken bones and concussions and that sort of thing in kids. But an inherent part of being playful is taking risk. Mm-hmm. What you don't want to do is, is have the risks be excessive. And the natural history of play in the world, both animal and human, is that persistent play increases the risk of death and damage while it's taking place, but it appears to be absolutely necessary for the well-being and, say, future of the species. So it is a, it's a conundrum, but to remove risk, all risk from kids' play is to not allow them, the spontaneity from within, to develop themselves. It's a judgment call on the part of parents. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where I have some, some beef with the media in that I think if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, the perceptions of the levels of violence and risk in our culture are really beyond what the actual risks are, so that a, a responsible parent feels they can't let their kid be out on the streets in the afternoon and that sort of thing. Right, and what I kind of hear you saying, I mean, here's a quote from something Jane Goodall said, and the play teaches young animals what they can and cannot do at a time when they are relatively free from the survival pressures of adult life. But I feel like we are so obsessed, and I'm you know, speaking for myself as well, with our children's safety and so fearful that they don't get that freedom our children. Very true. (laughs) And I I think this is, there are some heartening playground movements, both in Europe and in the U.S., where the playgrounds are going to be not so sterile Mm -hmm. and allow, I mean, the fact that there are no teeter-totters and uh, most of the swings don't really go very far, et cetera, et cetera, and the monkey bars can only be three feet high. You know, it's reasonable to have safe playgrounds, but it's also reasonable to have challenging playgrounds. And I think the balance, to develop that balance, is a skill that's now becoming uh, part of architectural uh, schools. And I know uh, there are some corporate interests in Europe that are trying to develop multi-ethnic playgrounds so that uh, some of the ethnic tensions will be uh, dealt with in a playground way when the kids are small. Hmm. I mean, I, I kind of hear you putting a point on this, though, and saying it's not, you know, that we're keeping their bodies safe and endangering their souls if we don't let them take some risks and be more playful. <laughs> no question about it. I think it's it's safer for the person who is a player to take a few hard knocks and maybe have a a fracture in childhood than it is to insulate them from the possibility of that. I think that that it, that's constricts their psyches and their futures much more. Hmm. You've even said that play rewards and directs the living of life in accord with innate talents. How does that work? How do you see that? Well, I could ask you as a parent and any other parent that's listening with a, a young child, mm-hmm. you know, say a child over three but under 12, and if you just observe them, and don't try and direct them and watch what it is they like to do in play and get some sense of how their temperament intermixes with their play desires, you often will see a key to their innate talents. And if those talents are given fairly free reign, and this I've done through a lot of clinical study of the histories of people, you know, some of whom have played and some of who haven't, If you allow those innate talents to build upon themselves and the environment is favorable enough so that it supports that, 
then the sense of empowerment and freedom, such as a premier musician or a prime athlete that's joyful in their athleticism, or, you know, the writer who's imaginative, J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, I think that, that then you see that there is a union between self and talent. And that this is uh, nature's way of sort of saying this is who you are and what you are. Hmm. And I'm sure if you go back and think about both of your children or yourself and go back to your earliest emotion-laden visual and visceral memories of what really gave you joy, you'll have some sense of what was natural for you and where your talents lie. Hmm. And So that's why I write that. Hmm. I think it's pretty important. Yeah. Do you... Um I, th- I think it's fashionable to say that media is ruining our children and they watch too much TV and video games are ruining them. And it's certainly one effect of keeping our children safe indoors is that we kind of make them captive to technology. That can be one effect. But I will say that as I look at some of the computer and Internet-based games that my children discover, some of them are incredibly interactive and there's a lot of sure imagination. Are. I mean, is some of that okay? <laughs> oh, sure. Well, of course. I mean, I, uh, the research is not very good, uh, in my view. It is pretty good on the effects of violent TV, for example, right. prolonged exposure to violent TV. But, but the research on video games, particularly if, if it's kind of non-addictive video game use, is not very solid. And I think there is evidence that a limited amount of video games probably increases imaginativeness and skills, and the newly designed video games that incorporate movement are likely to be much more savory for the body and mind than, let's say, one that's strictly two-dimensional screen and your thumbs on a gadget. Mm -hmm. Is the involvement of the body generally really important in terms of the positive effects that you've noted in play in animals and people? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked the question. Uh, part of the brain called the cerebellum, at least when I went to medical school, was was thought to just help coordinate eye movement and body balance. Now with the uh, refined imaging techniques, we see that there are connections between the cerebellum and the prefrontal cortex that get lit up by three-dimensional movement. And there's every evidence that movement accelerates learning. And... Uh, this is in its infancy, but there's enough evidence for this that this is, these are parts of, of studies that the National Institute for Play is, is attempting to organize because it uh, seems to be very important. I mean, I'm struck that we're, we're having this very serious conversation about play. <laughs> <laughs> Just, well, this is serious, you know. <laughs> um, we don't want to have any mischief happening in this program. That's right. I mean, this... Tell me how this research and this immersion that you have in play as a study, how does it change your experience of this part of life? How does well, it change it gives, you? Well, I, I give myself over at least three or four hours a day to what, for an old guy, is spontaneous free play. It, it, you know, it could be reading or what I would call as extremely uh, low-quality rogue tennis, <laughs> uh, hiking. Yeah. Playing with grandchildren, but I, you know, I, if a day goes by and I haven't at this age uh, had some sense of timelessness and freedom and purposelessness, uh, I'll probably be kind of ratty by supper time. But boy, cultivating um, an appreciation for timelessness and purposelessness—I mm-hmm. mean, that's work in our culture. 
shouldn't be. Should should be a part of our our you know you you attenuate recess, cut down recess, and kids are learning that what's important is academic performance, mm-hmm. whereas probably equal amounts, if not more, are being learned on the playground at recess. Most kids are outside of time when they're on the playground at recess if it's free play. Say more about that. What you mean outside of time? I mean that's such an evocative phrase. Well. If uh, one were to get a replay of Michael Jordan in uh, one of the final games of NBA championship and see him zoning down the floor, uh, doing some moves he's never done before and tossing the ball up for a basket, I doubt if at that time he has really conscious that the buzzer is about to go or that I think he's outside of time. Hmm. And I can certainly give you from my own life... Uh, recollections of that sensation. Uh, just, let's say, last week I was in a nice uh, musical concert that was being held in Monterey, and, you know, I got lost in the music and mm. had the feeling of, uh, you know, sort of an oceanic feeling of not being there. And it wasn't something I expected to happen, but it was pleasurable. Watching a grandson of mine on the floor with his stuffed animal talking to it, mm timeless and it's different for for lots of us but i think that that's a you know a play state of being that's that's an important sense of priority that you don't try and struggle toward but you try and sort of let it happen to yourself from within what works for you to Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Dr. Stuart Brown, exploring the place of play in human spirit and character. You did mention reading, and I, I don't know if reading would fall into a definition of play, but it is something, for me, that's very pleasurable and transports me to a timeless place. Is, is, does reading count for you? Oh, of course. Yeah. Very much so, and I share that, uh, that same... Weakness. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when, when you talk about timelessness, that does have a spiritual resonance. Um, how do you think about the spirituality of play? That's, or maybe you would put other words on it. Well, I don't know that I have a crisp way of thinking about it. I can give you a private experience that was, to me, a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. When I was working with the National Geographic and ha- was able to privilege to spend time with play researchers in Africa, I do vividly remember one morning when I was watching a pride of lions and two sub-adult female lionesses got up, uh, looked at each other, and there's a picture of these in the National Geographic magazine, what looked from a distance kind of like a fight, but it was a ballet. And... (laughs) While I was watching this, I was overwhelmed by the feeling that this is, I'm almost uh, brought to tears talking about it now, that this is divine. There's something divine going on here that transcends their carnivorousness and and the, you know, red and tooth and claw and the rest of it. Now, that's my projection onto it, but it still was very meaningful to me. Hmm. And I think seeing uh, a young child just immersed in play and watching them closely is a 
is a spiritual experience, and there is spirit emerging in play. Hmm. Uh, something non-material that's that's a part of it that at least it, it's hard for me to define it as just uh, ions zipping around in a nervous system. Right. And, I mean, if you are a religious person, I mean, do you have a different image of God because of this? Yes, well, I do. What does it do to your image of God to be a, uh, a lover I of think, play? Well, I think, you know, I've got, since I'm one foot is always stuck in science, I have some sense that this is God's way of evolving, uh, of things evolving in our biological universe, that some of the driving force behind change uh, is embodied in this this emergent property, this self-organizing system that tends to captivate the nervous system and the behavior of humans, but that I call play. And that, for me, expands and kind of gives me a sense of uh, unity with time and space and permanence and even the galaxies, which are also self-organizing and emergent. That's a very pleasant way for God to organize self-organization. <laughs> well, there's also violence. and There are a few other things one sees that, that uh, I don't want to be uh, you know, Pollyannish about it yeah. because I've certainly seen the world in, in its... Uh, you can't, as a psychiatrist or a studier of violence, not see the other side, which mm-hmm. I've seen too. Mm-hmm. But, but, the, but this is part of the, the big picture. This sure is. is also part of the big picture. I mean, we get a lot of publicity of that other of the <laughs> of the violence, <laughs> right? I'll say, I'll say we do, and it's there. It's real. There's no yeah. no uh, shrinking from it. Mm-hmm. What would you like to talk about? What have I not asked you about that animates you in this that you want to share with people? Well, I think the uh, the sense that if you're living a life without it. Yeah, your life can go on okay. It's uh, you're going to survive. You're not going to die if you don't without play. it with play, right? Without, without play, play. Mm-hmm. but uh, it's kind of an endurance contest, or uh, the sort of the the joy of living is lessened if one doesn't play, and in particular, if parents are tense and over organizing their kids with the hope they'll succeed, get into Princeton, uh, make a lot of money, so that they insist that every moment be play dates or soccer or ballet or gymnastics or, you know, music here, that some of the essence of life is being missed. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing and that's important to me. And probably the other thing that we haven't talked about but which has really struck me since I've been a student of play is looking at the biological design of being human. And when you look closely at that, I'll give you an analogy. A Labrador retriever plays through its lifetime and and dies a child. Hmm. A wolf sort of gives up childish things, double scent marks, has alpha behavior, uh, governs its reproduction, and is a very successful animal if it isn't killed off by humans, but doesn't play much. But if you look at the human and look at our nervous systems and our what I would call our physiognomy, the way we look and the way we're designed, right. we really are designed to retain immature, playful-like attributes throughout our life cycle. That's a fundamental part of our design. We know that human beings are now capable of neurogenesis, of new neural development throughout the lifetime, whereas most other creatures cannot. 
that's a design part of being human. Now take that into policy matters. Mm-hmm. Do we parent that way? Do we teach our kids in school that way? Do we take advantage of the design? Do we also see that there are are hazards? The permanent adolescence of the human being means we may be subject to irrational, impulsive behavior. Maybe our laws and our institutions should help reflect that a bit more. If we don't play, what are the consequences? We're more reptilian. We're... we're hmm more savage we're more we're, we lack some of those features that i've mentioned earlier in the program i think that in making a connection between play and maturity and wisdom because you know that's something i hear you're you're affirming i think one of the most surprising experiences i've had of enjoying growing older you know sort of heading mm-hmm. into the latter part of my 40s which is that i actually think i am enjoying life more and relaxing and, Good for you. And and throwing myself into play in a way that I didn't when I was younger and accomplishing things. Um, hopefully I'm still accomplishing things, but I'm not. <laughs> You've gained wisdom earlier than most of us. I certainly was a workaholic doctor for too long in my life. Right, but I mean, that is the model in our culture of what being mature is. I mean, being mature is being that wolf. It's leaving behind the Labrador behavior. I mean, clearly, Correct. I know what you're saying. There's a line between being a permanent adolescent and being a playful, mature human being. But um, I don't. I think you're right that our culture doesn't know how to talk about that playfulness well, as it, wisdom. Kind of. There is a there is a kind of a paradox in it. It doesn't mean we should be irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Just the opposite. By having empathy and trust and uh, compassion, which I think are byproducts of the playful life, because you got a little left over. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're just going to go off and do whatever you want hedonistically. There are boundaries that are certainly part of right. play. But it doesn't mean you have to be uh, grouch or uh, serious all the time. I mean, look at Reagan and Gorbachev at a, at a talks in Iceland. <laughs> they broke down completely until the morning they were to leave. Uh, Reagan had said, let's, let's have breakfast together. And he went in, started telling dirty jokes, and then... Gorby started telling dirty jokes. They reorganized the conference, and they got the, the missile situation taken care of. That's hard to so, turn into a paradigm, though. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I don't expect us to do that with uh, the Iranians at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember being at a, at a retreat once. Um, I think it was a spiritual retreat, very serious. And I remember some people saying how one of the things they were working at at this point in their life was playing more. And something about the way they said it, about what hard work it was, made it feel like a doomed <laughs> enterprise. Well, <laughs> and, it you doesn't know, sound like... <laughs> and and, and um, I worry a little bit. We've now kind of rediscovered we're having this conversation about our children, but are we going to make them work so hard at playing <laughs> that, we, that we ruin it for them? So, I mean, what advice would you give people about recovering this as a healthy part of our lives, if it's something that we've lost and that our culture really, really works against. I think recovering it depends a little on how much of it you had as a kid and you can bring back an adult form into your current contemporary life. You know, I take a lot of uh, reviews of play of, of varieties of people and 
when I come across somebody who really has had an abusive childhood and they say, well, I've never really played, I've never felt free to play, it's not that they've lost it, they feel they've never had it. Yeah. Well, then you, then you start with things like rhythm and movement and those things that intrinsically produce uh, some sense of pleasure and joyfulness. Uh, well, as Bob Fagan says, movement fills an empty heart. Maybe like um, movement, dancing, or sports, dancing, or anything? Yeah, da- dancing, but things that are conflict-free, but that you can kind of do, that produce a sense of some of the things I've talked about, a sense of pleasure, of taking you out of the urgency of time, that mm-hmm. uh, work for you, whether it's reading or dancing or hiking or mm-hmm. conversation in a, in a pub or what, you know, there's lots of different ways. But I think it's important to find those things that work for you and to then, uh, as Campbell said, then follow your bliss. Hmm. Find your bliss and follow it. But the bliss is usually uh, retrievable. It's kind of like you have to reach for it and pull it out, you know, from within your memory. But reach into visual images and emotional images that are that produce a sense of pleasure for you and then build on them. And mm-hmm. that usually helps in the recovery. And it, it's not something that happens overnight. It's a slow but enjoyable process. <laughs> it, it, I think it might be frightening at 60 to say this is an absolutely essential part of being human that I've paid no attention to and I'm not very good at and don't know how to begin. But, you know, it's different than trying to learn a new language. You're learning Chinese at 60 because right. Chinese isn't embedded in you, but play is. Right. you got to leg up on play uh, just by being human. Stuart Brown is founder and president of the National Institute for Play near Monterey, California. He is co-author of Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. The Encyclopedia of Play Science, an online research collaboration between the National Institute of Play and scientists from around the world, will be completed by the end of this summer. Find the link to that research on our website, onbeing.org. And there you can also listen again or share this show with Dr. Stuart Brown. And don't forget that we also now have a free On Being app. For iPhone and iPad users, go to the iTunes Store. Android users, download the mobile app in the Google Play Store. And please send us your feedback as we develop the next version. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Chris Jones, and Julie Raw, and is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, and by Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.